will start with Dr. Andrew Kuo, who's Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of Liver Transplantation at UCSD. Dr. Kuo is an expert in the management of end-stage liver disease and is going to talk to us Hepatology 101, since very few hepatologists are in the audience, really talking about the natural history of hep C and the complications of cirrhosis. Welcome, Andrew. And here's the pointer. Thanks. Thank you, Marion. You guys hear me back there? Okay, fantastic. Uh, well, it's a pleasure for me to come and speak to you. Um, this is like coming home to me. I was a uh, med student and uh, did my fellowship at UCSF, uh, so it's uh, a real pleasure to be back here. Uh, my job is um, an easy one. Um, it's uh, going to be interesting uh, because most of you all here are internists or infectious disease experts, a lot of HIV expertise in the room here. Uh, but my job is to um, we'll show you behind the scenes, give you all the, uh, the, the, back, the, the backroom information that all the hepatologists know. Uh, so you'll be experts in hepatology as well, and you can interact with your hepatology and, and gastroenterology con uh, colleagues appropriately to manage your patients. I will be speaking about a little bit about the burden of hep C disease, and, and those that were here uh, for Dave Weil's uh, uh, intro talk earlier, we'll see some repetition, discuss uh, fibrosis progression and the different uh, scoring uh, models for fibrosis, um, really highlight the importance of, of recognizing the difference between compensated cirrhotics and decompensated cirrhotics and knowing the different natural histories of each, uh, discuss uh, some of the main complications of cirrhosis, and then finally touch on the role and timing of uh, referral to liver transplantation evaluation. So this is nothing new to you all. Uh, hepatitis C is a global uh, epidemic. Uh, in the U.S., there are estimated about 5 million people infected with hepatitis C. Globally, this number is approaching 200 million. This is an interesting slide that you many of you have probably seen that the mor mortality associated with hepatitis C has eclipsed the mortality associated with HIV. All of you HIV providers in the room, you, you guys are doing a really good job uh, keeping your patients healthy, and so they're no, no longer dying of HIV. A lot of these patients, about a third of he uh, HIV patients are co-infected with hepatitis C, as you know, and many of these patients are actually dying of hepatitis C-related end-stage liver disease. In hepatology, we're not doing as well. We're not doing as well yet, uh, but with the new advent of direct antiviral therapy uh, with these small molecule inhibitors, we're hoping that we can start turning this curve around and make it look a little bit more like the HIV curve. Now, Dave Wiles uh, spoke about the birth cohort effect, and so this just shows you the, the prevalence of uh, hepatitis C infection in the United States uh, based on your year of birth. And so this this baby boomer, so-called baby boomer generation, those born between 1945 and 1965, have the highest prevalence of hepatitis C infection. And this is what led the CDC to recommend that all uh, people born uh, between 1945 and 1965 uh, be tested for hepatitis C, regardless of uh, the risk factors. And in the past, uh, the recommendations had been to only test those that had um, risk factors for infection, past IV drug use, blood transfusions, tattoos, multiple sex partners, uh, but now uh, the recommendation is to test everybody. 
And that's, that's a message that we really need to get, get out to this community, not just hepatologists, gastroenterologists, but internists, family practitioners, and infectious disease uh, pr providers as well, uh, that everybody needs to be tested. And as, as Dave also mentioned, uh, the number of acute infections is, uh, has dropped, uh, but it's been persistently, stubbornly uh, persistent. It's probably about 15 to 20,000 new cases of acute infection per year. The majority of patients that are exposed to hepatitis C go on to develop chronic infection. About one in five of those will develop cirrhosis, and those that have cirrhosis will develop uh, liver cancer at a rate of about 1% to 4% per year. This is a, a nice little slide that really shows the, the changing um, epidemic of hepatitis C in the United States, where about 10, 15 years ago, the majority of patients that were presenting to care had very early stages of fibrosis. And so on this model here, um, fibrosis is graded on a zero to four uh, scale, uh, with zero meaning normal liver with no scarring whatsoever, and stage four uh, uh, equaling cirrhosis. And early on, most of these patients were presenting with stage zero, stage one fibrosis. But now, I, I would say about 40 to 50% of the patients that present uh, to me in clinic already are presenting with cirrhosis. Um, and then, an, then the next most common uh, presentation is bridging fibrosis or stage three disease. And so these patients are presenting with more advanced forms of liver disease uh, when they finally hit your clinic. Now, what does this mean? Well, this means that uh, I'm going to be busy for the next 20 years. I've got a lot of job security uh, where uh, you know, this is 2010 now. We have about 100,000 uh, new cases of decompensated cirrhosis. So decompensated meaning patients that present with symptoms of uh, cirrhosis, ascites, encephalopathy, variceal bleeding, liver cancer, uh, 100,000 new cases per year. Over the next 20 years, that number is going to increase by 50%. The number of liver-related deaths is also going to increase by 50%. The number of liver cancers is rising to more than 13,000 new cases per year. just wanted to show you this schematic of what a normal liver looks like. I'm not controlling that, that pointer there. <laughs> uh, this is my pointer. Uh, but this is a normal liver. and. Um, you know, I, I take a lot of cues from my transplant surgeons, and, and one of my transplant surgeons in San Diego likes to describe the liver in uh, fairly simple terms. There, there are pipes going in and there are pipes going out. You know, from a, from a surgeon's uh, perspective, that's what he focuses on. So he's got to connect all the pipes. And I think it's just a pretty good analogy, and this is one that I use when I discuss this with my patients as well, and that the main pipe going into the liver is the pole vein. Uh, blood diffuses through the sinusoids, and it makes it back to the hepatic veins, which ultima ultimately gets to the IVC, which goes back to the right heart. Um, when there is uh, normal liver with uh, no scarring, the resistance in the sinusoids is very low. So the, the liver is a very low-pressure system. There's very little re resistance to blood flow through a normal, healthy liver. And this is another cartoon showing, um, you know, what the, the microanatomy looks like. And if you all re recall from um, histology courses many years ago, uh, the liver is um, organized into uh, different zones. And you have the portal triad here, which uh, has three um, features, the portal vein, the hepatic artery, uh, and the bile ducts. The blood is coming through the portal veins, and it's diffusing 
through these channels here, which are the sinusoids. And the sinusoids are lined by uh, the hepatocytes. And the hepatocytes are orderly, or arranged in a very orderly manner. Uh, and the sinusoids are only about one to two cells thick. And the resistance to flow is very, very low here. And the blood makes its way into the central veins and ultimately uh, gets channeled into larger and larger veins, uh, which form the, the hepatic veins and ultimately back to the IVC. This is a uh, cell that is uh, sitting between the hepatocytes and the endothelial lining uh, of the sinusoid. It's called the stellate cell, the hepatic stellate cell. And we believe that uh, this cell is one of the key players uh, for producing all the extracellular matrix proteins uh, that lead to fibrosis progression in patients with chronic uh, hepatitis. This is a, a um, explanted uh, specimen of a, a normal liver here, which again shows sort of a, a more wide out view of the uh, portal triad here, uh, and then the orderly sinusoids leading back to the central vein. And this is, um, the, the orientation is sort of like spokes in a wheel, where you might have a central vein here, and you'll have about six um, portal, uh, the portal triads that are all around sort of surrounding the, the central vein, and all the blood is, is uh, going centrally to that central draining vein. This is a, a normal liver. I, I don't see biopsies like this too often. And again, this is just a highlight when you have an activated stellate cell from chronic liver injury, whether it's from uh, hepatitis C or alcohol or, or augment hepatitis. Th these are all um, uh, insults that trigger the activation of the stellate cell, which lays down collagen and other extracellular matrix protein uh, molecules. This is um, the most common scoring system um, that's used in the United States is a zero to four system. Um, and again, uh, stage zero, so F0 is a normal liver with no fibrosis. And with viral hepatitis, the pattern of fibrosis is very specific. Uh, the fibrosis starts around the portal tracts and then extends outward from those portal tracts. And so in medicine, everything is sort of pattern recognition and it's no different in hepatology. If you have a little bit of extra scarring around the portal tract, we call it stage one. If the, the, the scarring starts shooting out little fibrous septa outward, we call it a stage two. If the fibrous septa start making contact with adjacent portal tracts or with the central veins, we call it stage three or bridging fibrosis. And once you have bridging fibrosis with nodule formation where really the, the fibrous septa are, are much more, um, uh, you know, they're, they're much more established in sort of thick bands of fibro fi fibrous tissue, you'll get these islands of liver tissue that are trapped and the liver tries its best to regenerate and, and, and it creates these little regenerative nodules. And when you see regenerative nodules with the bridging fibrosis, that's what pathologically, that's what cirrhosis is and that's uh, stage four disease. Now, I just wanted to highlight again, there, there are going to be a couple of different uh, staging systems. Uh, in San Francisco, the predominant system is the zero to four system at UCSF. Uh, they use the BATS Ludwig. At UCSD, we use the, the modified ISHAC, which has uh, zero to six, which is a little bit more helpful, uh, more in sort of research purposes when you need a little bit more granularity in separating the different stages of the fibrosis. But in clinical practice, 95 plus percent of the country is going to be using the, the zero to four staging system. So if you get a, a pathology report, it's important to know um, what system they're using to report because in F4, 
uh, with one of these systems is going to be cirrhosis, whereas an F4 in the modified ishac is going to be bridging fibrosis. And this is the the schematic of the the ishac zero to six system. And again, sort of stage five to six is uh, five is sort of early cirrhosis, and six is really sort of very established cirrhosis, where the bands of, of blue fibrous tissue here. This is on a trichrome stain where your hepatocytes are going to be nice, healthy pink here. And then all the fibrous tissue is going to be stained blue. Um, and as you uh, progress with uh, fibrous expansion uh, emanating from these portal triads, uh, it, it starts shooting tendrils out. And so you start to see a little bit of bridging here. You start seeing sort of early nodule formation here. And uh, eventually, you know, this is what you end up with, which is the, um, the, the cirrhotic explanted liver, which is uh, shrunken and hard to the touch and lumpy and bumpy. Okay. So this is another picture, just to contrast. I'm, just, I'm trying to hammer this home to you guys, what this, this difference looks like. Normal healthy liver, just a nice little central vein here. We've got the portal triads uh, you know, surrounding the central vein. Uh, very, very little blue. So the tri on the trichrome, blue is going to be scar tissue. Very, very li little here. So this is a normal sort of F0 uh, uh, fibrosis stage. And then contrasted with this on the right, you can sort of see grossly this is not, they're not the same. Right? This is a very different um, dis distorted architecture uh, where you see these large nodules that are surrounded by bands of fibrous tissue. Um, and you can imagine blood flowing through this liver is going to be unimpeded. Blood trying to flow this through this liver is going to have a really hard time. All right, so let's start with uh, you know, a sample case. This is a patient that, uh, that I've seen in the clinic recently, a 56-year-old Hispanic man who was diagnosed with hepatitis C eight years ago. Uh, he has a CT scan that was read as a nodule liver consistent with cirrhosis, and he had a liver biopsy that confirmed the presence of cirrhosis. He was complaining of fatigue and insomnia, uh, but he denied any ascites, encephalopathy, or GI bleeding. Uh, used to work construction, but now he's on disability for some chronic back pain. And, and he tells me in the clinic, he says, you know, I, I heard I have cirrhosis, doctor. You know, how long do I have to live? You know, do I need a liver transplant soon? So I'm going to pose that question to you in a minute. Um, this is uh, his uh, initial blood work on that, that first uh, intake visit. His white count's a little bit low. His hemoglobin's low. His platelets are low. His INR is normal. Transaminases are mildly elevated. His bilirubin is okay, but uh, maybe a touch elevated above one. His renal function is good. His sodium level is good. And he has genotype 1A virus, and he has a favorable IL-28B genotype CT. Um, and his MELD score and CHILD-2 score are what you see there, and we'll go into what those scores mean. So this is your patient. What do you do now? Are you going to refer him for liver transplant evaluation? Are you going to treat his hepatitis C with triple therapy furase inhibitor? Are you going to refer him to a transplant center and say, tag your it, you treat him with the triple therapy furase inhibitor? Or are you going to refer him uh, if you have access to an interferon-free clinical trial? Are you going to call Dr. Peters in the back there and say, I need your help now? All right, so 
confident bunch, and so most of you guys are going to dive right in and just 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 treat this guy. I I, I like the um, the I, I like the the bravery. I the courage is uh, I can feel it. Um, this is good. You know, I probably would do that uh, the same, uh, but I want to sort of walk through uh, some of the complications that you sort of need to be aware of. And later into the day, um, other speakers are going to be talking more. Uh, especially when, when we talk about the adverse effects of therapy, about what you need to be um, cautious about. So there's no right or wrong answer here. just wanted to pull, pull you guys. Okay, so, so why do we care about treating these patients? I mean, he already has cirrhosis, right? You know, and, and we, we, what we'd like to do is uh, treat the disease to prevent these patients from progressing to cirrhosis. Ideally, that's what we'd like to do. And, but this gentleman has already progressed to cirrhosis, and so why are we bothering with triple therapy? Why are we bothering with you know interferon, which makes people sick and they hate it, and you know they've got all the side effects? And why do we care about that? Well, this is a study that sort of shows why we care. Uh, this is about 300 patients. These are Spanish patients with bridging fibrosis or cirrhosis. They were treated with PEG-RIBA. Uh, they cured about a third of these patients. And they followed them for median about three and a half years, but all, some of them up to 10 years. And their transplant-free survival was different if you achieved cure, SVR, sustained virologic response, which is cure, uh, versus if you were not cured of the virus. And so long-term survival with achieving SVR is fantastic. Long-term survival with um, those that had failed the therapy is not so high. This is a... Um, Another uh, study that sort of highlights this difference where um, you'll have patients with so-called compensated cirrhosis and those that have decompensated cirrhosis. And so if you can all recognize the patient that, that in our example, that patient had compensated cirrhosis. No ascites, no encephalopathy, uh, no variceal bleeding, no liver cancer. His labs were preserved. He was complaining of some fatigue, but otherwise he was in pretty good shape. That patient long-term survival curve is going to look like this. Uh, whereas patients that start presenting with complications of cirrhosis, so anybody that has encephalopathy or, or varicea, uh, variceal bleeding or um, uh, liver cancer, their long-term survival curves are going to look really quite different, right? And so five-year survival in, in, in this study, uh, European study, uh, for compensated cirrhotics was over 80%. Five-year survival for decompensated cirrhotics was 25%. So really, the, you know, determining if your patient with cirrhosis is compensated or decompensated, that's my first decision tree. That's my first fork in the road, and that's what I, I teach all of my uh, GI and hepatology fellows to recognize immediately. Just to go back, and so your risk of transitioning from compensated cirrhosis to decompensated cirrhosis is about 4 to 5% chance per year, right? So in any given year, the patient has a 96% chance of being stable. But if we follow these patients long enough, we follow them for 10 or more years, more than 50% of these patients are going to transition from the compensated state to the decompensated state. Now, when I think of complications of cirrhosis, I, I like to, I'm, I'm a simple doctor. I like to think, um, uh, you know, about sort of simple buckets, right? And so I like to throw... Uh, complications into two main buckets. You know, one, one bucket is the portal hypertension-related bucket, and, and this is where I can, I can you know, um, uh, uh, I can connect on an intellectual level with my surgeons 
you know, they think about the liver being sort of just the pipe analogy. So it's a, it's a plumbing problem. The pipe's going in, the pipe's going out. And so if the problem is, is resistance to flow through the liver because of all the scarring that's happening in the sinusoids, then there's going to be an increase in, in the pressure in the sinusoids, which gets transmitted down into the portal vein. Uh, the portal vein is a confluence of two vessels, as you all remember, the, the, the superior mesenteric vein and the splenic vein. And so that pressure is also uh, transmitted down into those veins as well, which leads to problems like splenomegaly, uh, which is what uh, causes the, the pancytopenias that many of our patients see. Um, a, a very common complaint is thrombocytopenia in patients with cirrhosis. I'd say 80-plus percent of patients will have thrombocytopenia. And it's interesting. About 15 to 20 percent of my patients that are referred for evaluation of liver disease from hepatitis C, they, they'll come with a, um, a previous referral to a hematologist. And a lot of these guys have, have gotten bone marrow biopsies to work up their thrombocytopenia and pancytopenia, which we don't generally recommend, but it uh, just so, sort of goes to show that, uh, you know, in, in the community, we've got a lot of work to do to educate providers about, um, you know, the how, how patients with advanced liver disease present, because they probably don't need that bone marrow biopsy. Uh, but when you have the, the portal hypertension, this leads to ascites formation, varicular bleeding, encephalopathy, and I'll go over all these mechanisms with you in later slides. And on the other side, I, I really think of sort of the other big bucket is um, hepatocellular dysfunction. And the, the liver is an amazing organ. I think it's the coolest organ in the body. Um, I'm, I'm partial to that, but uh, it is the coolest organ in the body. It has 900 different metabolic functions, but among some of its functions, uh, it produces all of the clotting proteins that we all need. And so as it's not able to produce those clotting proteins, uh, coagulopathy develops. Um, the liver also detoxifies the bloodstream of a whole lot of different toxic chemicals. Ammonia is just one of the many chemicals that uh, is detoxified and handled by the liver. And if it's not able to do that efficiently, then hepatic encephalopathy can develop. And again, liver cancer is a consequence of the bridging fibrosis and the nodule formation as the liver is trying to you know, create these regenerative nodules. And it's, uh, it's accumulating mutations, which is what leads to hepatocellular carcinoma. Now, there have been a number of different scoring systems, and so, you know, we all like, um, uh, you know, metrics. We all like to quantify things numerically, um, but it helps us all um, speak the similar language. And so, if you're dealing with a hepatologist or a gastroenterologist, and, and we're speaking about a patient with cirrhosis, rather than, than saying, you know, this is a cirrhotic patient with encephalopathy that's controlled with lactulose and ascites that's poorly controlled with diet and uh, diuretics and uh, esophageal varices that are banded and used on propranolol. We like to say this is a, this is a child class A cirrhotic. This is a child class B cirrhotic or child class C cirrhotic because it gives us a common framework for discussing really how sick is this patient because that's really, really what I want to know. When I see a patient, I walk into that room, I want to know, um, is this patient that um, you know, I've got time to, to work with and sort of educate about how to keep themselves healthy, or is the patient that I need to ref, you know, refer to our liver transplant clinic today? Um, and this helps us do that. The child's pew system is a, a combination of physical exam findings and also sort of objective laboratory uh, values where you're able to quantify the, the, the degree of the dysfunction and you assign points uh, based on how abnormal the patient's um, labs or their physical exam findings are. 
and you add up all the points, and so there, these are, there are five different categories, encephalopathy, ascites, bilirubin, albumin, or degree of coagulopathy. Um, you add up all the points, and if you've got five or six points, you're a you're child A. If you've got seven or nine, then you're a child B. And if you've got uh, ten or more, you're a child C. And so you know, this, this matters. And so we've, we've been working with the, the, the child's Q classification, classification system for decades now, and it was really first used by surgeons to predict mortality from surgery. Uh, but what we're finding is that it's a, it's a relatively good predictor of overall mortality in any patient with cirrhosis. And if you're a child's acerotic, again, this is gonna, these are going to be patients that, that follow that compensated cirrhosis natural history curve that I showed you a little bit earlier. Their five-year five year mortality is only about 10%. If they're a child B, that goes up to 20%. And if you're a child C, you're, you're, you're in really bad shape. One-year one year, uh, mortality, um, a third of these patients are dead. Um, or they need liver transplant within that first year, and two-thirds are dead or need liver transplant within the first two years. And so if you see a child C, you know, do not pass go, refer to your nearest hepatologist liver transplant center. This is a patient that really needs urgent care. Send directly to Marion Peters. Okay, and so now there are other models of predicting uh, or, or, or grading a patient's severity of liver disease, and, and this is the, the, the MELD score, and you've, I'm sure you've all heard of it, the model for end-stage liver disease. And, and this um, was uh, developed uh, uh, as a response to, to Congress sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, directing the liver transplant community to figure out a more objective and reproducible system, you know, a more fair system for prioritizing patients on the liver transplant waiting list. Uh, because the old system used uh, a combination of the child's Q classification as well as where the patients physically were located, whether they're at home or they're on a med surge floor or whether they were in the ICU. And, and as you can remember from the child's Q classification system, a lot of this stuff was, um, was uh, you know, a little bit subjective, right? I mean, does the patient have slight ascites or is it moderate or severe ascites? And so depending on what your judgment is, you can assign more or fewer points. And, and this system was not thought to be very fair. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it was abused. Not, not, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, abused everywhere, but there are instances where, where patients, where the, you know, the well-meaning providers are trying to give a little benefit to their patients. And so you might sort of overestimate the severity of liver disease. Or, you know, instead of managing the patient on the floor, you might move them to the ICU because now they have a different priority status. And so clearly that was not the best system. And what the transplant community came up with was this MELD scoring system. And the MELD score just takes, it's just a mathematical equation. It takes three blood tests into account, your renal functions, your creatinine, and your bilirubin and, your, and the INR. And you plug these numbers into this complicated formula, and it spits out what your MELD score is. And the MELD score ranges from a low of six points. And so all of us in the room that have healthy um, and happy livers would have a MELD score of six right now. Um, and the patients with the sickest, uh, uh, the most advanced decompensated cirrhotics, those are the ones that are, you know, actively dying in our ICUs would have MELD scores of 40 points. And so depending on um, how many points you have, that would determine your priority on the waiting list for transplant. And a MELD score what it really does is it predicts your chance of dying in the next 90 days you know, without, without getting a transplant. What is your chance of dying? And again, if your MELD score is 40 plus, 
then you're, 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 you've got an 82% chance of dying in the next 90 days. And if your MELD score is trivial, your, your, your chances of dying are, are in the single digits, so they're not very high. And so as your MELD score rises, um, you know, we have a sickest first allocation policy where the livers go, go to, to those that are, are the sickest. It doesn't matter how long you've been waiting. If your MELD score is higher than your neighbor, then you're higher on the, on the priority list than your neighbor. This is a uh, ROC curve showing that MELD is a better predictor of mortality than child's Q, and that's why we're, we use MELD score. And, and we've used MELD score in this country since February of 2002. So this has been a 10-year experience. Now, how do you know a patient has cirrhosis? So a lot of these patients will come to you, and um, they might not know. You know. Maybe they were recently diagnosed with hepatitis C, and, and it's your job, it's our job, to figure out how advanced the liver disease is. You know, sometimes it's going to be painfully obvious. Um, you know, the patients with bellies out to here, and you know, they're, they're glowing with their jaundice, uh, and they're so confused that... Uh, you know, that they're, uh, they can't stay awake uh, during your, your clinic visit. Well, that's going to be pretty obvious about their, de their, their degree of, of, of liver disease. But patients, even with, with cirrhosis, in the early stages of cirrhosis, the patients might be asymptomatic. You know, like our, our initial patient case where fatigue was his really his only um, main major complaint. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's a laundry list of physical exam findings you can look for just wanted to highlight a few of them. So a lot of the patients will have um, these little vascular abnormalities called spider angioma, uh, which are just little uh, vessels that sort of fill centrally, and they have these little spider leg-like projections that emanate from the central vein. And uh, if you, if you um, push on them, they blanch, and then you release your finger, and they, they, they fill with blood. And, and typically, these spider angioma are going to be on the upper chest, uh, the neck and the face. They're, they're almost never on the, the abdomen or the extremities. The patients can have pulmonary edema, and this is obviously a, uh, a picture taken from an ICU. I think this poor patient is getting a central line place, but this shows all the polysystemic collaterals that are forming. This is the, the cap of Medusa uh, that uh, signifies really advanced pleural hypertension, and obviously you've got a belly full of fibroids. Now, going back to this schematic, you know, when you, when you have advanced scarring, that blood cannot get through the liver very well. And so that back pressure develops and the pressure in the pleural vein elevates. The, the blood is shunted towards the, uh, the stomach here. And so there are collateral uh, vessels that are wrapping around the stomach and the esophagus. Uh, there are also blood that's shunted towards the liver, which causes the splenomegaly. This is a CT scan that I wanted sort of to highlight this point. This is the esophagus here, and this is the esophageal mucosa, which looks normal. But then you see all this bright stuff in the middle of the esophagus. Well, that shouldn't be there. Um, you know, those are uh, intraluminal esophageal varices, and, and, and by, by this scan, this looks pretty bad. These, 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 these vessels are uh, large diameter, and the larger the diameter of the, the, of the, of the vein, uh, the more wall tension uh, exists in that vein. And veins are very thin-walled structures, and so uh, the, the, the wall tension rises uh, uh, as a square of the radius. So a small change in the diameter leads to a geometrically higher increase in the wall tension, which leads to risk for rupture. But I wanted to highlight this CT because you can see all the intraluminal varices here. On another cut, you can see not just the intraluminal varices, 
But you see all these here? These are Verisies as well, which are the sort of the deeper structures. Um, and so the Verisies that we see on endoscopy are just the tip of the iceberg. And so the, the, the varices are sort of a, a, a network of veins that are wrapping around the esophagus. And it's just the ones that are in the lumen that are at risk for bleeding. And those are the, the, the focus of all our endoscopic interventions like band ligation and sclerotherapy. And what we're trying to do is trying to redirect all that blood flow to the deeper veins that are not at risk for bleeding. This is a little picture endoscopically of what these, these, these veins look like, sort of little serpiginous. Uh, vessels that are emanating from the surface of the mucosa. This is uh, what we call a nipple sign where there's a platelet plug showing recent bleeding, obviously active bleeding here. And, and we can address these by doing uh, a bunch of different things. By uh, This is a, a rubber band that's been cinched at the base of, of, of the varix. And we do that with endoscopy. The patients are sedated. Fiber optic camera is inserted into the mouth. And then over the, um, the, the end of our of our, our scope, we've got a little plastic cap with small little rubber bands that are stretched over the, 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 the outside of the cap. We, we find one of the columns of, of uh, uh, varices and we suck it into our working channel and then we turn a little knob which pushes one of these rubber bands over the, over the top, over the end of the cap and then it cinches down sort of right at the base of that varix and it interrupts that column of blood flow and it clots off and it um, it um, uh, recedes into the wall of the esophagus uh, almost immediately. Um, common question is uh, what happens to that rubber band? Uh, well, you know, this becomes necrotic, and in about five to seven days, the whole thing just falls off, and the rubber bands are only about, you know, a couple millimeters in diameter, and they just get passed in the stool. The patients don't even know. And then what you have left is sort of this remnant um, ulcer ulcerated crater uh, from, the, um, from the banding site. So we'll put these patients on um, you know, proton pump inhibitors and to minimize the risk of uh, acid reflux causing uh, bleeding after the band ligation. Um, the second complication we deal with commonly is ascites. Um, you know, these patients will have, uh, you know, obviously this is an extreme example with umbilical hernias uh, that uh, can be life-threatening when these rupture at the surgical emergency. Hopefully they, they don't you know, progress to that degree before we, we start seeing them. Uh, but the problem with ascites is that you have two problems. One is the, the plumbing problem, where you have increased resistance to blood flow, and so the hydrostatic pressure in the sinusoids and the portal veins and the mesenteric uh, venous system is increased. But often you also have synthetic dysfunction. So a lot of these patients are not able to make all the albumin that, that patients need, and so you'll have decreased oncotic pressure as well. And so you'll have inability to keep all the, the fluid in the intravascular space. And this leads to a, a dramatic increase in the formation of lymphatic fluid. And your abdominal cavity can only absorb about a liter of, 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 of fluid per day. And if you're producing it faster than you can absorb it, then you, you, you accumulate ascites in the peritoneal space. And, and that's, what we, that's what we commonly see. Skip this. Obviously, you can stick needles in it and, and, and pull all the fluid out. Um, uh, you know, this is a um, you know, fairly straightforward procedure, but it has complications uh, associated with it. One of the most important complications is circulatory dysfunction. So if you do large volume paracentesis and you take out a large amount of this fluid, you know, five liters or more at a time, 
uh, what ends up happening is uh, the body abhors a vacuum, right? And so you just pull off a bunch of fluid from the peritoneal cavity. All the fluid that's in the in the veins will try to fill that space up again, and you'll 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 cause sort of decreased effective circulating volume. So the, the amount of blood that's sort of circulating in the body is going to drop, and these patients are going to be at risk for renal failure, hepatorenal right, renal syndrome. And so if you do have patients that undergo these large volume paracentesis, what you need to do is make sure your interventional radiology colleagues or gastroenterology colleagues, whoever is doing the paracentesis, uh, gives them albumin replacement. Um, and by giving albumin, you, um, you restore sort of the oncotic pressure in the, in the vessels and you, you minimize the risk of the circulatory collapse uh, and triggering a renal syndrome. This is really an important uh, element here. So if you send anybody for paracentesis, make sure you confirm with the radiologist that they're giving albumin replacement. It's not always done. Um, patients with ascites, uh, the first line management is to restrict their sodium intake to less than two grams of sodium per day. The, the, the big problem is their kidneys, they, 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 their signals are sent from the liver that affect the kidneys, and the kidneys think that you're dehydrated all the time, and so it, it tries to retain all the sodium and water that you're taking in by mouth. And so if you are taking in, you know, the average American diet of nine grams of sodium per day, you're going to overwhelm this, this system. And it doesn't matter, you know, if you're promoting naturesis with, you know, furosemide, um, you're not going to be able to excrete all the sodium that you're taking by mouth. And so the first line is really to, to counsel them about low-sodium diets. And then finally, if that's failing, you can add diuretics. Um, patients that develop refractory ascites, their, their long-term survival is poor, 50% survival at two years. And so, you know, this is an indication to refer to your nearest transplant center. Uh, moving on to encephalopathy. Um, so encephalopathy is a spectrum of neuropsychiatric changes. Um, I, like, um, I like this schematic here, uh, which sort of divides encephalopathy into, you know, covert or minimal encephalopathy versus overt encephalopathy. And so overt encephalopathy, these are going to be, you know, stage one is going to be patients with aspirixis. Uh, stage two are going to be patients that are stuporous and you have a really hard time waking them up with sternal rub. And then finally, stage four is coma. But there's a large category of covert encephalopathy or minimal encephalopathy where by all, by all measures, you can, um, uh, they, they have normal dis you know, conversations with you in the clinic. But um, if you do very sort of subtle neuropsychiatric testing, you can elicit um, uh, deficiencies. And then those patients are at risk for things like increased car accidents and falls and and we're beginning to recognize more and more that minimal encephalopathy is, is a problem. Just to go back here, you know, part of the problem is, is ammonia. And, and, and there are a lot of other toxins that are involved. But ammonia is produced by the gut flora that are in your colon. That usually is removed by the liver in the first pass metabolism. Whatever is left can cross the blood-brain barrier and affect cognition. And so if you've got, obviously, advanced cirrhosis and you're not able to clear or detoxify all the ammonia, that can lead to excess ammonia lead, you know, getting to the brain. Uh, if you've got oral hypertension, you're going to have shunting of some of that blood around the liver. Uh, and so that it never gets uh, cleansed by the liver. And that, again, goes to the brain. There are a couple of different patterns. Um, you know, some of the patients, most of the patients will present with episodic encephalopathy where you have, uh, you know, acute confusion, we treat it, it gets better, they get readmitted a month later with another confusion episode, we treat it, it gets better, and on and on it goes uh, episodically until they get their transplant. 
Um, some patients uh, never meet the clinical threshold of encephalopathy, no overt encephalopathy, that so-called minimal encephalopathy group. And then the most difficult to treat patients have persistent encephalopathy where they're always altered. They, they're never normal, no matter what you throw at these patients. And this is just sort of shows you how common minimal encephalopathy is. And those that have overt encephalopathy, this is really a, um, a, uh, a bad prognostic sign. This really shows that their liver function is pretty marginal. And it's really time to consider liver transplant evaluation. Uh, there are a number of triggers for encephalopathy. Um, this is a laundry list here. But what I'd like to sort of show is um, this is a study from a hospital in, in India which looked at, uh, they tried to find the trigger for, you know, uh, 400 consecutive products that were admitted that had encephalopathy, what was their trigger? And most of the triggers were infections with SBP, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis being the most common, but other infections like pneumonia and UTIs. And then constipation, so not taking their lactulose uh, was another problem. Now, we, we treat it by first line is to... Um, First, we try to identify what the, what the trigger was, and if whatever it was, we treat that, whether it's infection or constipation or GI bleeding, we, we try to resolve that. And then we give the non-absorbable disaccharides. Lactulose is a disaccharide that we can't digest, but the, the gut uh, microbes can uh, hydrolyze this, and it sort of cleaves that disaccharide into monosaccharides. And by doing so, it releases hydrogen ions, which acidify the gut lumen, and what that does is it converts the ammonia, which is you know, NH3, to ammonium, NH4+, which is much more water-soluble. And so that ammonium stays in the gut lumen, stays in your fecal stream, and you expel it, whereas ammonia, uh, NH3, is much more easily absorbed across the mucosa. If lactulose is not effective, then we can add non-absorbable antibiotics like rifaximin. Uh, that acts by killing the bacteria that are making the ammonia in the first place. Uh, and so these are commonly used together. Moving on to uh, liver cancer, and so uh, the, the, the incidence is about, you know, 1% to 4% chance per year. But once you get liver cancer, the median survival is not very good. Uh, chemotherapy is, is so far fairly ineffective against liver cancer. So this is just a, a, a chart that shows you that the, the incidence of liver cancer per year uh, uh, is higher in countries uh, like Japan and in certain European countries. And the thought is that their hepatitis C epidemics occurred uh, decades before the epidemic hit the United States. And so in Japan, their hepatitis C epidemic uh, hit you know, 20 or 30 years before us. And so these patients are, are presenting with more advanced uh, stages of fibrosis, more advanced cirrhosis, and they have higher incidences of, of liver cancer. Now, how do we screen for it? And so the, the mainstay really is to concentrate on um, identifying the cancer early. If we detect it early, there are a lot of treatment options, some of which are curative, including liver transplantation. But if we diagnose it too late, when it's already spread outside the liver or gotten, gotten into the, the blood vessel, so-called vascular invasion, uh, then there are no curative therapies that, that can help. And, and we're really um, focused more on palliation. And so we, we, we try to screen them with imaging every six months. Uh, the Liver Disease Society guidelines recommend abdominal ultrasound, and, and that's uh, what we do. Uh, but there are certain patients that ultrasound is, is not ideal for. Uh, obviously, obese patients, you really can't get very good pictures of the liver. 
Um, patients with large amounts of ascites, again, you can't really get good pictures with the ultrasound penetration, or those that their, their cirrhosis is very advanced and they've got a lot of regenerative nodules, sometimes it makes it really tough to identify a small lesion. And in those patients, we might consider a multiphasic study like a CT scan or an MRI. Just wanted to show you a, um, uh, a, a CT of a real patient that really illustrates the importance of making sure that if you do order a, a multiphasic a CT or MRI, that you order it correctly and you make sure that your radiologist understands what you're trying to accomplish. Um, this is a, a CT scan with no contrast or the pre-contrast phase where, you know, you, you really can't see where the liver lesion is. When the contrast is in the arterial phase, uh, you, this lights up very brightly. You wait a few seconds more until the contrast is now in the portal vein, then your lesion washes out. And so wh what this is exploiting is the difference in the blood supply to the hepatocytes versus the blood supply for these liver cancers. Liver cancer is a highly vascular tumor. Uh, it derives its blood supply from uh, angiogenesis. And so these, 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 these tumors will secrete factors that will cause uh, blood vessels to, uh, to grow into the tumors. And these blood vessels originate from branches of the hepatic artery whereas most of the blood supply to the hepatocytes is really coming from the portal vein, right? And so if you have contrast in the artery, that's gonna lead to your cancer lighting up preferentially, whereas the background liver hepatocytes are gonna be dark because of the, the contrast hasn't arrived there yet. Got a couple more minutes here, or maybe one minute. So I wanted just to cover when do you refer for transplant. Um, our sample patient comes back three years later and uh, now he's got uh, varices, he's got uh, uh, ascites managed with diuretics, he's, he's on uh, treatment for encephalopathy, his labs don't look as hot, his MELD score which had been seven now is 21, which equates to a 25% risk of death in the next 90 days, and he's a blood type O. And now he says, doc, I think I need a liver transplant, and I, and I say, I, I agree with you, I agree with you. Um, just to recap, so that, that MELD score of, of uh, 25 or so equates to a 25% mortality. And if you have decompensated cirrhosis, these are indications to refer to a transplant center. If your MELD score rises above 10, that's indication to refer for transplant. So the last slide I want to show you is that there are some regional uh, differences between sort of access to transplant. Um, across the country, our patient is a blood type O. The average MELD score at transplant is about 25 across the country, but we're in region five, California, one of the five states within region five. The average MELD at transplant is 33 or north of 33 now, uh, whereas in region 10, which is uh, uh, Indiana and, and, and those environments, the average MELD at transplant is only 22. And so unfortunately, there are some disparities in access to transplant depending on where you, where you live. Okay. Thank you Thank very you. much. <laughs> Don't leave Dr. Quo. He had a lot to cover, so we'll do the best we can. Uh, the fibrosis will be covered in the next talk. Do you check ammonia on levels in cirrhotic patients and do you follow them serially? Great question. So um, we almost never check ammonia levels because it's not very helpful. The only instance where I would check ammonia level is if a patient uh, presents with altered mental status of unknown cause. You know, I, I don't know if they have cirrhosis. I don't know 
uh, if they have uh, intracranial lesion, or know if they've got an electrolyte problem. And, and in that setting, when you don't know if the patient has advanced cirrhosis, I might help uh, if you check an ammonia level, and if it's sky high, it would point me in the direction of liver disease being the cause. Uh, but um, I, I don't follow it uh, serially. It's actually not helpful. Um, I often see patients that um, their other providers will check ammonia levels as their, their, you know, their standing lab panel would include ammonia. That's not helpful. Um, we don't um, uh, make the decision to initiate encephalopathy treatment based on an ammonia level. It's based on clinical symptoms. And so if you have encephalopathy, you give them the lactulose, no matter what the ammonia levels show. There's a number of questions about alpha-fetoprotein, canned by the ASLD, still there with easel and apazil. Do you do it? What if it's abnormal? What about hep C, and do you do a biopsy? Yeah, no, you know, three questions there. Um, so you know, imaging is really the best way to, to screen for liver cancer. Unfortunately, uh, liver cancer does not always produce alpha-fetoprotein, so up to 40 to 50 percent of liver cancers will not produce alpha-fetoprotein. And so as a screening tool, the, the ASLD has decided that uh, the performance of that test was not very good, so they removed it from the guidelines. Uh, I, I generally agree with that, uh, although it is helpful in following patients that um, have known liver cancers as response to treatment. And so if you've got a, a, a liver cancer on imaging that you pick up, you send an alpha-fetoprotein on a 2,000, and then you send them for a blader therapy, therapy like, like embolization, embolization. It's, it's nice, nice to see, see that, that number go down, down to, you know, 20. 20. Uh, and, uh, and if, if it, it ever rises again in the future, future then you're more suspicious about recurrent disease. Um, the, the other thing that, 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 that Dr. Peters brought up is what about uh, viral hepatitis and what happens with alpha-fetoprotein. Alpha-fetoprotein is commonly mildly elevated in patients with chronic viral hepatitis, and so it's not that unusual for us to see alpha-fetoproteins of, of 20 or 30 in patients that do not have HCC. Um, it's, it's just, just a, function a function of the inflammation and regeneration that's happening in, in patients with chronic viral hepatitis. But if, if you start, start seeing numbers over 100 or so, then I'm much more suspicious that, there, that there's an underlying cancer there. Quick answer. When, does it matter if you give the albumin before or after large volume paracentesis? You know, it's a good question. Um, the, what we tend to do is we give it during. Um, you know, I probably would just make sure that uh, these patients have the orders, you know, before the paracentesis. I, you, know, you don't want to, um, you know, have the, the, the six-liter tap happen, and then, then you're struggling to, to order the albumin from the pharmacy, and it's an hour delay. And so I'd, I'd try to get that all set up, you know, before you even start the paracentesis. Last question. What makes the non-intraluminal veins at lower risk of bleeding? Well, you know, they're, they're surrounded by all the, the, the fibrous tissue, right? So. It, it's, it's just, just the ones that are just uh, protruding right in the middle of the lumen. If they if they are rupturing, there, there's no um, stroma to sort of uh, keep that all in place. So it's it's just the ones that aren't protected by all that deep fibrous tissue that are at risk for rupture. Second last question. Um, I don't know the answer to this. What's the incidence of thrombocytopenia secondary to liver disease without splenomegaly? Hmm. Um, I don't know the answer to that too. Um, I'd say that the you know, majority of patients, almost all the patients that I see with significant thrombocytopenia are going to have some degree of splenomegaly. Um, but um, I, I'm probably guessing it'd be maybe 10%. I don't know what you think, Mary. I don't think I've seen it, but it may be very yeah. small, not palpable. So like a 550 spleen instead of 750. Okay, thank you very, very much, Dr.